0: Hey, this is Cody Turner. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Professor Michael Morell about the nature of democracy, which is a topic that he specializes in. Dr. Morell is currently a political science professor at the University of Connecticut. He received his PhD in political science from Arizona State University in 1998. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Morell about a range of different things related to democracy, including the question of whether democracy has epistemic value the distinction between deliberative democracy and agonistic democracy, the effect that social media and the internet is having on democratic discourse, the connection between empathy and democracy, the recent rise of populist politics in the United States, and the nature of contemporary political polarization in America. I will embed a link to Professor Morell's book in the show notes, which I highly recommend checking out because our conversation doesn't nearly cover all the content in the book. And the book is entitled, Empathy and Democracy, Feeling, Thinking, and Deliberation. I appreciate Professor Morell coming onto the show, and I feel as if this conversation is very timely, given our current political moment. So buckle your seatbelts. Here we go.
1: Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. A place to talk the rain away with your host Cody Turner. Storm
0: coming, Mr. Wayne. So the first question I had is just about uh, the value of democracy, and the question in particular is: is is a part of democracy's value epistemic in nature? Which, which is to say, are democracies better than other forms of governance at arriving at truth or arriving at the correct answers to political questions, or is democracy just valuable simply because it's the most just or the most fair form of governance? I was, I took a political epistemology class this past spring, and there's this one theorem called the diversity Trump's ability theorem. And the idea there, if I remember correctly, was that it, you know, it's actually democracy is, does have epistemic value to it because A disparate group of people who have different points of views and different life experiences, having all of them, all of their voices weigh in on political issues is more likely to arrive at correct answers than having some small group of wise elites or something like that. Do you have a perspective on that? Um,
1: I have a perspective, but it's not uh, fully formed. I think there are some people that have been arguing, uh, as you say, that one of the advantages of democracy is epistemic that that if you have there it's the you know colloquially the wisdom of the crowds approach to things that demonstrates that on many things if you get a lot of input from a lot of people you're more likely to arrive at the correct decision however you want to define the correct decision um But it's usually defined in epistemic terms. I think there's some evidence for that, um, but I am still not entirely uh, convinced of the parameters under which that works that way. I think it does work that way under certain conditions, but I'm not entirely sure that I'm confident in what those conditions are um, at this moment. Uh, So you could probably say in general, it could be a benefit of democracy and probably is a benefit of democracy, but I'm not sure uh, we completely understand um, its role. Uh, for me personally, I've, I've always thought of democracy as the more most, uh, as you say, fair. Um, I, I have a presumption of equal treatment that everyone should count the same. And if you think that way, uh, chances are that democracy is still the best way to achieve that kind of goal of treating everyone uh, equally.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't really uh, sure how I felt about it when I was learning about it in the class. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before, I'd always just thought about democracy as being the most fair form of government and haven't really considered its epistemic value. Another thing that we talked about in the class was political polarization. And there's this distinction that was made between what was called effective polarization and issue polarization, where effective polarization is just when our attitudes towards one another are polarized. And issue polarization is when our perspective on particular political issues are polarized. And I forget who made the point, but someone made the point that there's actually less issue polarization than we might be led to believe. And that if you actually pull people on particular policy issues, there's more consensus than what would appear to be on the surface and that a lot of the polarization that we're seeing right now is effective polarization. Would you agree with that analysis? Yeah,
1: I think that, that the evidence for that is pretty good at this point. It's something that's still under study. Um, a lot of political psychologists, the idea of affective polarization and its its contours, they're studying it right now. I just was at the uh, did my first online virtual conference uh, under conditions that we're under today. The International Society of Political Psychology held its conference, which was supposed to be in Berlin online, uh, just a few weeks ago, and and clearly affective polarization is one of the key ideas that people are studying in in that field. And I think there's good evidence of that. Um, It's always fascinated me, even before a lot of this, that if you uh, do research on uh, asking people about uh, people with whom they disagree, um, and uh, specifically in a political context, uh, there's evidence back, you know, from a long time ago that says that they tend to view um, the other side not just in terms of disagreements, but there's some sort of moral underlying component that the other side, that the, especially the the very committed partisans, that the other side is somehow um, morally wrong, uh, that the other side leans towards even being evil. And so I think there's uh, some evidence uh, that uh, that kind of affect of polarization is certainly very, very strong. And I think that's there. Um, And of course, we always have to distinguish between the elites uh, and the non-elites. And and there's some evidence that especially the non-elites are, like you say, not as polarized on the issues as... uh, the coverage of, uh, of this issue seems to imply, um, and I think there's um, some evidence for that. But there's also evidence that, especially in the United States, that what's happened is um, we've we've engaged in sorting. So we've sorted our partisanship a lot more along lines that would lead to this kind of polarization. Even if there's some issues where it's not quite as strong as people say. Um, there's still a lot of issues that in the past you had cross-cutting cleavages among the parties. So you had Southern Democrats, you had Rockefeller Republicans, and so the parties were were much less homogeneous, even on political issues than before, and that they've become much more homogeneous. Now, does that lead to more polarization among the non-elites? There's some debates about that, and I think there's some evidence for both for and against. But in terms of the elites, it seems like the polarization has gotten much more strong. And then that reflects back, especially among committed partisans who tend to follow uh, the political elites in many ways in terms of their judgments of issues and judgments of others. and so you get this kind of reciprocal cause and effect when you get the partisan sorting, you get the, some of the elites polarization that then feeds back into the non-elites. So I do think a lot of it is affective. A lot of it is kind of um, this kind of judgmental kind of uh, polarization um, that, that that has happened. Um, and there is, I think there's good arguments for it, that there's less polarization. Uh, Maybe radical polarization among non-elites on issues. Um, so I think by, I by think political- that that differentiation that, that scholars have start, started to make is, is 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 I think valid. Yeah.
0: And by political elites, do you just mean like politicians, people in mainstream media, people in mainstream institutions.
1: Right, political elites. I mean, various studies define it in various ways, but it's those people, yeah, who are have uh, some sort of leadership position, whether it's actually fully elected officials or leadership positions within the parties, or elites that work within uh, things like think tanks or lobbying organizations, and some people even take it down to as. Um, as people who are delegates to national conventions. Um, the, the, I was actually a delegate at one point many, many years ago. And I was interesting. one of my uh, professors uh, at the time I was in graduate school, he was doing a study of elites. And so I got to do his survey <laughs> because I had been a delegate uh, to a convention in 1992. So, um, so yeah, I think you, you've hit it on the head, it, but it's, it's it goes beyond just um, the like elected officials that you see in the news all the time. It does go a little bit deeper than that. But if you look among them, um, that's where again, you, you, you've seen the partisan sorting and there tends to be some evidence that they are polarized uh, much more than they used to be.
0: In doing some elementary research for this discussion, uh, another doctrine, which hit my radar is what's called political realism. And, It says that politics is, I just thought it was really interesting. It says that politics is chiefly about group alliances, political identities and partisanship rather than informed and thoughtful deliberation, preference formation and voting. You know, a lot of people think that that's what politics is about. It's about deliberation and, and, and voting and all these things. But political realism says that, no, it's really a more a matter, a matter of uh, tribal battles between both sides. And maybe this will get closer to, uh, the notion of deliberative democracy and the work that you've done in that area. But what, what's your basic perspective on that theory of political realism?
1: Well, I, I actually haven't heard uh, that theory or that description of that theory. But uh, so everything I'm going to say, you have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, but it sounds interesting interestingly uh, familiar to other theories uh, in the... Study of democracy. So, if we go back um, to the middle of the twentieth century, uh, there there was this, especially with the advent of things like public opinion polls and and things that started to happen. And it actually goes back even further than that. You you had a group of people that came up with an idea that we call competitive elitism. And they started to challenge at the time, and actually, if, if you want to really look further back, it can even go back to the late 19th century. They started to challenge at the time the kind of classical ideal of democracy rooted in kind of an Athenian understanding of it, that democracy was about citizens who get together and they do their duty. And yes, and this idea of information exchange, you know well before we called it deliberative democracy, they challenged that idea. And they basically said, most people are uninformed they're apathetic they when it uh, comes into politics uh, they they don't act very well they don't demonstrate any of the kind of ideals of the kind of classical citizen from athenian democracy and so they came up with this idea of competitive elitism um, which has various forms uh, but the 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 most simple form is that we should really understand democracy as the competition among elites for political power through the mechanism of approval through an election that is that Democracy. What democracy functions as is is this competition among elites. Now, there were people that then challenged that uh, idea uh, that that's really what democracy was. Part of the challenge was um, an argument about whether we, how we define democracy in terms of an ideal or a normative ideal versus how it might function in certain ways. And one of the arguments was, well if you gave people education if you if you opened up processes more that people would would pay attention more, they would be less apathetic, they would, um, you know, engage a lot more than they had up to that point in time, but the, the reasoning being that they'd only engage up to that point in time because they hadn't really had the opportunity to do so. And that kind of spurred the kind of uh, participatory and other forms of democratic movements in the 1960s that slowly kind of started to influence ideas of like deliberative democracy and deliberation today. Um now So, in the more recent past, what you're describing sounds a little bit more like what some people call agonistic democracy. Um, They reject the kind of deliberative democratic notion uh, uh, as the kind of foundation of democracy and instead, kind of, it sounds like, uh, very similar to what you say, that democracy is about agonism. That is about competition among different groups uh, in a struggle for political power that uh, the key to having a well-functioning democracy is not trying to have this kind of deliberation, not trying to work towards consensus, but just making sure that people don't uh, turn their agons, this is the Greek word for competitor, right? turn their agons into enemies. That is, the key for democracy is just making sure that people don't uh, start attacking each other in very uh, you know, authoritarian or even physical ways. Um and so that's how we should conceive of democracy and trying to do it any other way is not only unrealistic it's actually dangerous because it leads to um this kind of subtle ways in which we push towards consensus we don't allow outside voices and in some ways most importantly it subsumes um it makes people you know kind of Put their ideas under hold, but that they, they don't let go of those ideas. So you've got this current underneath of anger and frustration that will erupt uh, and and be threatening to democracy. And some agonists believe that that they there's that we've demonstrated that uh, in in the recent times. The response to that, uh, of course, that that many people have put forward is that. Um, you know, we're seeing right now what agonistic agonistic democracy might look like. Uh, that if the if you don't have this idea of deliberation, if you don't have an idea where people have to talk to one another, engage with one another, engage with in ways that are mutually respectful then you have the opportunity or you have the tendency to go down a road where the group that wins then uses its power in ways that are very destructive of things like democracy itself. And so um, there's always been this kind, I think in the history of the study of democracy, there's always been this tension between, oh, we have to be realists about the way things really function in the world and this holding up of the kind of democratic ideal, this kind of, um, you know, ideal that we may not be able to reach or meet, but that for normative reasons is something that we should consider as kind of a regulative ideal, right? This idea that um, we use it to kind of gauge uh, whether we're we're achieving what democracy should should achieve.
0: Yeah. One thing that I, and this is another thing I wanted to talk to you about. One thing that I think has really functioned to undermine that democratic ideal that you're talking about is social media and the internet. I feel like at the beginning of the internet, there was this dream that it would democratize all of information and it would help disenfranchise people with no institutional power, have a platform and therefore a voice, and, and it, it would uh, promote democracy. And I think we even saw that during the Arab Spring, for example, um, where people that were disenfranchised you know, could could voice their opinions and they wouldn't have been able to do so if social media channels like Facebook and Twitter didn't exist. But In the past few years, I feel like that dream has become more of a a fantasy because we've seen how social media can be systematically gamed to undermine democracy. We saw this with the Russian disinformation campaign in the 2016 presidential election where the St. Petersburg Internet Research Agency deployed real people and internet bots and flooded the informational channels with fake news. And they intentionally tried to sow division between rival political Factions. So, I, I just wanted to get your perspective. How big of a threat do you think the internet and social media is for the health and well functioning of democracy at this point? And do you have any ideas as to how we could go about remedying this problem? And that's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question.
1: Yeah, that's a very big question. And and I'm gonna uh, be completely open here. Um, I'm not on a lot of the social media. Uh, I don't yeah, do good. Twitter. I don't do Instagram. I pulled back from Facebook um, and, and, in part, for other reasons. And for me, it's been much more about uh, uh, privacy reasons and control, uh, sorts of things that I think I just want to, I can't win that battle, but I want to make little moments of, of my own resistance. And so yeah. I've avoided those. So I don't have a lot. I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, in a good position to have a lot to say about them. I think um, you talk about the threats, um, but you can also think about uh, the ways in which, like you talked about the Arab Spring, but even the ways in which social media, uh, in response to the situation uh, with Black Lives Matter recently and how they've used that social media in ways that I think have been positive. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it seems like it can... like any tool it can go both ways. I'm sure people thought the same thing about news you know newspapers and radios and television and um, I'm sure if we looked back at those debates that we would see very similar debates so yeah you know I'm not very qualified to talk about the social media stuff because I, I, I tend to I want to I tend not to to play in that field um, mm-hmm. I don't even do it so I don't have and I, I haven't looked at a lot of the studies I've seen some of the studies on it. Um, so, I'm not qualified there. The one area that I have done some work on is in terms of uh, comment sections in online news. So I was part of a project that where we did a large field experiment involving over a thousand people from across the world uh, doing uh, comments on news uh, articles, especially op-ed articles, uh, using different platforms. Where we there were there were attempts to structure the platforms in ways that would lead to um, more uh, intellectually humble and more um, deliberatively sound uh, interactions with one another, and um, we we tested two platforms and compared them to a, a kind of a regular threaded platform and uh, we're still in the process of analyzing the data the one thing we found though that i think is kind of interesting um one of the platforms is called deliberatorium and it was designed by a, a guy named mark klein out of mit and it's a very structured platform and they've used it in other kinds of settings in the news comment setting we found that it was very frustrating uh for the people that were doing it um it's a very structured platform and it 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 requires more of a commitment than the kind of just, you know, I want to vent my feelings on a comment platform. Um, the other platform was one called Scolio, or I'm sorry, Polis. Uh, the, the, the overall project is called Scolio, so if anyone wants to go scolio.net, you can go see it. Um, the other platform is called Polis, and it's spelled P-O-L-I-S. um and it was actually designed or the, the lead on the project is a former uh, University of Connecticut student um, who's helped design this. And it's a really interesting platform. So people rate different ideas and after rating different ideas, people start to see kind of where their groups are, where, what people are agreeing are. And it's a visualization of the kind of space of people's reactions to various statements. And I think it's really interesting because it does start to show maybe something what you were talking about before that, well, yes, certainly people are kind of separated on certain things. There are other things that maybe aren't uh, separating them as much and that there's often not just two sides on any particular issue, right? There's oftentimes groupings that come up that are different uh, than simply uh, side A or side B. Um, so there are possibilities um but it's very complicated because uh as you know uh, things like this um require a lot of moderation and a lot of sites have just given up they've decided that the the vitriol that shows up from at least among a few people just just isn't enough so as for the future of democracy i think it's like any tool it's it Yes, there's a threat there. There's a danger there um I think that that but th- the possibilities are still there as well and and so I guess it it comes up. can we come up with a way um to mitigate the the negative effects uh while you know keeping the good effects and I'm not sure i that's a good question you know you probably know that better than I do so
0: yeah. Yeah I, well, yeah, I think part of the problem is, like you said, there's just so much content on a lot of these platforms. It's just unmanageable for people at Facebook to moderate everything that's on the platform, you know?
1: Well, I don't think it's unmanageable. I think if they made the commitment and were willing to put the resources into it, they could do it. But they don't want to do that because that costs money. Um, <laughs> I, I, seriously, that's what it comes down to. I don't know. There's, there's this great. I mean, they do have moderators, right? hmm and there's a great documentary out there and I'm forgetting what the name of it is, but it was all about these, these um, really severely underpaid people in the Philippines
0: mm.
1: who their job was to sit in, in an office in a cubicle and just look through thousands of images or posts or videos that had gone up on Facebook to see if they violated Facebook's policy. And not only are they woefully underpaid, a lot of them are suffering from severe mental health issues because of this. Um, you could imagine having to, to screen out all of the the videos and the images of, of violence, and, and you That's know, a tough job. Yeah, it's it it would be extremely difficult, and yet, so <clears throat> could they do it? Absolutely, they could do it, but it would cost them a lot of money, and and I don't think they're willing to to make the, that kind of commitment. Uh, to, to, to doing it outside of any kind of, you know, theoretical or principled commitment to ideas of free speech. I just don't think it's like anything. They could, they, they could do it. Um, if they wanted to, uh, I don't think it would bankrupt the company, but it would cost them a lot of money. And I don't think that's what they want to do.
0: Yeah. And I do think that a lot of these platforms When they were making their platforms, they didn't take into account how specific design decisions could influence the discourse on those platforms. So I was talking with a professor about how, you know, the emoticon function on Facebook encourages more emotional reactions. And maybe if they had made a different design decision, people would be disposed to converse with one another in more epistemically productive ways. I was reading another article about how, you know, maybe we should remove, remove anonymity people and that'll encourage people to be uh, uh, better stewards epistemically on the platform. But then there's a counter argument to that saying how, well, actually the ability to be anonymous allows a lot of people from disenfranchised communities to speak out in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be able to. So there, there's a lot of different issues, but That's yeah. There's
1: a lot of trade-offs, exactly, yes. Uh- yeah. Yeah, the anonymity issue and I should uh, uh, one of my colleagues in another study uh, Hans Ansebaum, has published about that as well and and uh, yes there are trade-offs with those kinds of uh, issues uh, with regard to anonymity uh, and and same thing with emoticons I mean or you know um, I'm 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 uh, in my own research and in my own thinking, I I push back against people that say, oh, well, that's all emotional um, because I'm very much a dual process uh, kind of person. I believe that emotions uh, affect and and reason are intertwined in so many ways that um, I want to
0: talk to you about that,
1: actually. Yeah. So so. So sometimes I push back against that idea that it, that it's if we didn't have the emoticons we'd all be okay and I'm I'm not so <laughs> sure about that but um, yeah the structures the structures matter the structures do matter um, but no matter how you structure it there's always going to be tradeoffs
0: yeah. Now. Yeah. I was reading that, uh, in preparation for this, I was looking over the paper by Jonathan Haidt called the emotional dog and the rational tale. And he talks about that, about how there's this false dichotomy between reason and emotion and how they're really two sides of the same coin and how emotion comes first a lot of the times. And our reasoning is just kind of this post hoc justification of our emotional reactions and our value judgments.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't, agree with everything that height says but i do agree um with the general thrust of the the critiques of the kind of idea that emotions are all the problems and part of it gets back to if you think deeply about it right and 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 kant tried his best to get away from this um uh, but when you think really deeply about it it's it Most decisions about rationality, like when you say, oh, that was an irrational decision. At their base, they rely on other kinds of affective or emotional things for the justification. So the reason why um, the trade-off happens is at its base, there are other, certain emotions, let's say you get really angry and do something that you don't like, or you feel is irrational, the reason why it is irrational is because that emotion of anger, right, has, has led you to behave in ways that makes you uh, feel other emotions that, that you don't want to feel. Um, and so at its base, I think a lot of things do go back to kinds of affective, at least have affective components to them. And it's really about the balance between the different affective components, Um
0: yeah. So, so I think this, this might get it, us into. Sorry. Go ahead. Go
1: ahead. So I just say, if you read Kant, right, he's it's all about duty, right? You do it because it's your duty and no other reason. But if you if you read him very closely and 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 question it, well, why do I want to f- f- fulfill my duty? What is it about duty? And there's places where he is. It's st- he's st- he's at a strain to prove. Well, it's not because you feel good about doing your duty. You just do your duty but I've just remained unconvinced. The people that feel like we should do our duty feel good about doing their duty. It gives them some sense of satisfaction. Uh, so even the most rationalistic at the, at the bottom, I think have has affect and it's all about the balance between Mm -hmm. those different affects that we feel.
0: And I definitely think that's borne out phenomenologically for me. Like when I'm like, it feels like something when I disagree with someone, when I have that visceral sense, oh, that person's wrong, or they made a logical fallacy. Like There is a feeling to disagreement and, and to understanding, I think, if mm-hmm. I just reflect upon my own conscious experience. I think this might get us into some of the work that you've done. I, I, I checked out a couple of your papers, and you talk about how political scientists in the past couple of decades have increasingly become interested in affect and the role that it plays in uh, political decision-making and deliberation. Uh, so maybe first, what is the effect, affective effective intelligence hypothesis? You talked about that in a couple of your papers.
1: Yeah. The effective t- intelligence hypothesis, uh, by uh, George Marcus is, is one of the main guys that does this, uh, Michael McEwen. Um, the idea behind that hypothesis is that whenever we encounter, uh, phenomena, We are guided primarily by a surveillance system that is an unconscious system that kind of evaluates the world in which we live. And if there's nothing that is unusual, nothing that interrupts that system, that we just kind of go on doing our kind of normal habitual actions, those habits that we've we've developed over time um, that just tell us how to behave. Um, but whenever there's something novel, whenever there's something that kind of interrupts that, you know, habitual way in which we act, we often have pre-conscious affective reactions to those either novel situations. And in, in the current thinking under the, the people that do affective intelligence especially, um, those reactions are, can can be of three Basic types, um, the three most prominent types. We either react with anger, uh, we have react with anxiety or fear, or we act, react with enthusiasm. So, enthusiasm is the one that happens when it's it's much more positive. Uh, and then we just keep continuing to do what we do because, oh, yeah, that's great. We feel good about the way the world is. Um, the anger and the anxiety reactions are both reactions to things that disrupt that a little bit more. And their argument at this point is that if we react with anger, we tend to retrench. That is, if we get angry about something, we want to go on the attack. We want to defend ourselves. We don't listen, uh, to maybe evidence that, that, might question our own beliefs. So that anger reaction is very uh, negative for democracy in many ways. It's, it doesn't, or negative for deliberation, if you have a deliberative conception of democracy. Anxiety on the other hand, which is also related to fear, if that becomes the dominant reaction, then we tend to be much more open to changing our mind, much more opening to listening to evidence that might be different or might challenge our beliefs. And so, as it stands, that theory of affective intelligence uh kind of plays out uh in our reactions to the political world um, more recent evidence they've tried to play out with is are trying to distinguish well, why do we react with an anger versus an anxiety uh in challenging times they have some initial evidence that if it's a value threat and this kind of plays along with what Height is talking about if there's a value threat then we tend to react with anger um but that that evidence is 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 just preliminary at this point i think uh they're working on getting more um but that's kind of the affective intelligence theory that a lot of what happens is our uh, comes a out because of these affective reactions, often preconscious to things that are different in the world or things that, that aren't things that we just kind of habitually react to.
0: Yeah. I found it especially interesting how productive anxiety can be for deliberation, according to this hypothesis, because my intuitive conception of anxiety is that it kind of just paralyzes you, you know, it stops you in your tracks.
1: Yeah, no, I think that, um, there's still some some teasing out of that. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a certain level at which anxiety would cause withdrawal, uh, and and cause you know avoidance or evasion. Um, so I think at what point anxiety becomes too overwhelming, we're still getting uh, there's still that's still an area that needs some good research. Um, So I I think, yeah, I think that needs some, some good research uh, on it. Um, But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they've got some decent evidence that, that anxiety can, in the absence of any kind of formally structured institutional opportunities for deliberation, can induce deliberation, um, reflection, thinking, um, and certainly more, I think the basic idea that if you get angry, you're not going to deliberate or you're not going to reflect, I think that, that is a pretty good argument.
0: So I want to talk about the work that you've done on the relationship between empathy and democracy. You wrote a whole book on this. Um, So I guess first, how do you define empathy? How is it different from something like sympathy? And why do you think empathy is so important for the functioning of a healthy democracy?
1: Well, I define empathy as a multidimensional process. That is, empathy itself is not a feeling. It's not an affect. It's not a mood. It's a process um, whereby the feelings or the, aff- the affect of others has an influence on us. Um, sometimes that influence is for us to f- to feel either the same or similar feelings to the other people. Sometimes that process is a a more – so that's an affective component of it. Sometimes that process is is more cognitive where we gain – even though if we don't feel exactly what other people are feeling, we gain a better understanding of what they're feeling, why they're feeling it, and maybe even why they think and act in certain ways. Um, it can be a process that is much less conscious, uh, where the distress of others causes distress in us. But in the end, for me, on my definition of empathy, if there's no reflection at all, that is, if we don't then have some sort of moment of reflecting back on the feeling, you know, the reactions we've had to others, uh, that kind of, for me, falls outside. The idea of empathy. So, how does that relate to sympathy? This is a classic issue because unfortunately the, the the word empathy doesn't enter the English language till the early 20th century. And so when we look back at people like, let's say, Human Smith, who talk a lot about sympathy and uh, morals, especially, um, the question is, is are they talking about sympathy or are they talking about empathy? And my argument is, is that people like Human Smith are actually talking about what we today call empathy. Um, the idea of being, uh, simpatico or, or, in, in that kind of connection with is much more related to what we call empathy today. And what we call sympathy today is much more, uh, something that I think is related to the process model of empathy. This model I've adapted uh, from a psychologist named Mark Davis. And that is that sympathy is very much similar to affective, uh, concern, um, and so it's kind of a component of that. So when you say I have sympathy or I sympathize with, it's not that it's just that you've uh, kind of understand them; it's that you agree or that you you feel some sort of concern for uh, the other person. Now, some people would challenge me on that because if you look at Human Smith, sympathy does seem to imply agreement, and I and I understand that. But for me, you can empathize with someone without actually having sympathy for them or agreeing with what, what, you know, they think or believe or the way they've acted. So you can understand it, but still say I disagree with, um, you know, the way someone feels even. Uh, So that's kind of my definition of empathy. Does that, have I I made that clear?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, makes sense to me. I mean, you don't have to
1: agree <laughs> with that definition. But I think it, that for various reasons, it's it's the best definition. Um, and then we're talking about language. And unfortunately, because they defined it as empathy, uh, the people that translated this kind of uh, ancient uh, or 19th century German aesthetic term called Einfüllung, uh, because of the way they translated it and its adaptation to both psychoanalysis and to social psychology, it's a very confusing term. Um, and I don't. Other people that say no, I wanted to find empathy differently. I understand that completely, and I don't disagree with the, them necessarily. But for me. It really makes sense to talk about empathy in this way and then to be very specific about what you mean when you use the term empathy. Do you mean this kind of sympathy-like affective concern? Do you mean this process of trying to engage in perspective taking so that I can understand what other people are saying, that colloquial put yourself in other people's shoes kind of position? so I think if we define it in this kind of multidimensional process way, we can see the various aspects of it and people could talk about, well, I'm talking about empathic concern or I'm talking about empathic perspective taking that. That's helpful. Now, why is it important for democracy? You asked me that. Well, this gets back to like one of the very early questions you asked me. For me, the key to democracy is that we are supposed to do our best to give equal consideration to everyone in the polis. and. The argument that I make with empathy is that if we don't have a process of empathy, then we are never going to be able to give equal consideration unless we want to define equal consideration purely in kind of legalistic, de jure, you know, de jure terms. That is, one option we have if we want to give everyone equal consideration is to simply say everyone has the same rights, everyone should have the same legal protections, everyone should have the same power of voting. We should try and distribute power institutionally as equally as possible and then just let things fly. And, and once you do that, as long as you make sure we enforce those laws as much as possible, we are treating everyone equally." Um, That is a somewhat appealing notion because it, it gives you very clear definitions of how you can treat everyone equally, and even though it's not perfect, you can try and set up institutions to achieve that. But I think even if we do that, even if we have that kind of legal structure that treats everyone as equally or fairly as possible. But if we want to give equal consideration, that is, if we want to consider everyone equally, we as a society have to have people engage in this process of empathy. Um, because otherwise, there are always going to be biases that sneak in. There's always going to be ways in which, you, which people are not really giving others equal consideration. And so that's why I think the idea of empathy, the process of empathy, is not only important. I mean, I make two arguments. One, I make it's important. And I think I can convince a lot of people about that. Um, but I make a second kind of contingent argument that I think it's actually central yeah. to the well-functioning of a democracy. And that's the more kind of radical or more uh, the stronger argument that... Um, But the more time goes on, I think the more it's true that if you don't have the process of empathy happening, that you really are not being very democratic.
0: Yes, uh, that definitely resonates with me. I want to get your perspective on a potential pushback. When I was looking over this, it immediately reminded me of a book by the psychologist Paul Bloom called Against Empathy, where he advocates for rational compassion over empathy. So I just want to read a quote and just kind of get your reaction to it. So he says, my beef, my beef is with empathy in particular with its role in decision making. Empathy has certain design features that do make it positive in certain restricted circumstances. Empathy's design failings have to do with the fact that it acts like a spotlight. It zooms you in, but spotlights only illuminate where you point them at. And for that reason, empathy is biased. The second problem is the innumeracy. Empathy zooms me in on one, but it doesn't attend to the difference between one and one hundred or one and one thousand. It's because of empathy we often care more about a single person than one hundred people or one thousand people. Or we care more about an attractive white girl who went missing than we do a thousand starving children who don't look like we do or live where we live. So it might feel good, but empathy often leads us to make stupid and unethical decisions. Another example that he gives here. To drive the point home, in the contemporary political context, he talks about how uh, Donald Trump's rhetoric about immigrants and Muslims was was framed in terms of the suffering of people. He would tell these stories to about you know the victims of uh, rape and victims of shooting, and this was designed to elicit empathy. But of his first and his supporters, but those concerns were zoomed in in in, in a tribal way, and. Because of this, he advocates for what he calls rational compassion over empathy, and I was just—I was just wondering what you think about that, maybe potential critique to the argument that you're making.
1: Yeah, no, that's an important, and Paul's not the only critique. Uh, some so, um, uh, Molly Scudder has taken me on directly uh, with very similar critiques, uh, and I think these are important critiques to pay attention to um, because now again we get back to the definition of empathy what do you mean by empathy um and and i think in some ways that what uh, bloom argues for in the end this rational compassion to me fits in in many ways to the process of empathy that i call empathy so i think his concern is, is more with something very specific about a certain kind of empathy or a certain kind of way in which the process of empathy happens. And so these are our our real concerns. But I think there are two uh, ways in which we can respond to those concerns. So Bloom's concerns are about the way empathy actually functions kind of in the world today in some ways. Um, That is, look, this is what happens when we do empathy. And I think he's absolutely right. And there's a, a related concern or kind of that gets at that kind of third thing he talks about, which is that we, when we empathize, we tend to empathize in biased ways. That is, we empathize you know, with people like us. It's much easier for us to empathize with people that we agree with and those sorts of things. And I think that's absolutely correct. Um, but the question is, what is our response to that? Um, my argument is the response to that is we need to create opportunities and institutions that allow us to empathize more broadly than we do right i mean if we just look at uh, the way things function in today then yeah there are some issues with the way empathy functions but that's a critique not of empathy of itself but a critique of the, the opportunities in which empathy can function mm-hmm. so we should be very very cautious of people using empathy as a weapon right? Just like we should be very cautious of people using rational arguments as a weapon, right? I mean, I don't think there were just empathy arguments being made. Um, I think uh, you could also argue that there, there were rational arguments being made uh, about policies that were just as problematic and, and, and difficult. So, one response to that is to say, look, yes, you're absolutely right that empathy can be biased, but we need, therefore, to have better you know, opportunities of empathizing in wider sense. And then we can debate, is that really possible? I think it is that it can be broader, you know? Um, uh, but I, I, I could, I could see that, that argument. The other argument, you know, I, I would make against uh, critiques like Bloom's is that there's an assumption there that we, the, or they they tend to ignore the fact that empathy is going to happen anyways even if you engage in some sort of rational compassion kind of process those same biases that he identifies are going to be part of that process as well and this gets back to so how do we respond to that and my argument is we have to respond to that by being uh, uh, able to have people empathize more broadly right mm-hmm. the response can't be let's get rid of empathy right it can't be that issue yeah, or it can't be that kind of a response um because we can't get rid of it it just it's not going to happen so the question is not do we have empathy or not the question is is do we have broad empathy or do we have narrow empathy and so my argument is is that we need to have broad empathy and we need to work at that and having said all that i think that uh, I'm not that far from Bloom in the end um, because he, he makes a very, you know, Adam Smithian argument, which for me is a very uh, argument that's very much in favor of a process of empathy um, happening. It's just, we don't want to just react to, Oh, I feel empathy. So I'm going to, I'm going to act. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that, that, anyone who argues for putting empathy either in moral central to either moral or political concerns would say, Oh yes, we should just act on every You know, every moment of where empathy leads us to sympathy, we should act. No one would make that argument, I think. Um, And I think the counter to kind of the Trump and the, and the rhetoric, and of course this happened after he wrote his book is the George Floyd situation. And I, I think that, you know, there's, there's almost, it's almost impossible to look at any kind of major movements towards improvement uh, of equal treatment in, in this country, where there wasn't at least some sort of situation in which the process of empathy wasn't involved. Whether it's that, whether you look at the um, success of Uncle Tom's Cabin during the, the period right around the Civil War, whether you look at the, you know, images of. of you know, civil rights uh, movement people getting getting, you know, attacked by the police uh, during the civil rights of the 1960s. I think every major advance at least has involved not just the affective component of empathy, but certainly the affective component of empathy and then the reflection on that in the discourse. And so, I think I remain at least at this point uh, committed to that idea that it, it's. We need to have broader empathy if we want it to function well.
0: Yeah. On, on the broadening out point, that that's one thought that I had is uh, in Buddhism, you know, they, they have kind of, they advocate sometimes one kind of meditation is a loving kindness meditation where you just extend your love to all sentient beings. And it made me think that maybe you can do the same thing with empathy. If, you know, it's not necessarily a spotlight, you can extend it out. So it captures A broader range of people, like you say. Um, Another potential maybe worry or, or question that I had here is is empathy always useful for every group of people? For instance, is it like I can definitely see how it's useful for people that are in power and to allow them to empathize with people who might be marginalized, right? Like white people empathizing with the, uh, or trying to empathize as best as they can with the lived experience of minorities that they don't really have, um, the direct experience to understand, but for oppressed populations is empathy always useful or might there be some circumstances where it's more politically beneficial, uh, to have other emotions like righteous indignation or something like that?
1: Yeah, this I think is, uh, you've hit on probably the strongest uh, critique and the strongest question I have even about my own theory, which is my theory argues that we need to broaden empathy. That means it does mean that we should, you know, if we're going to treat everyone with equal consideration, everyone needs to treat everyone else with equal consideration. And so, yeah, you get back down to the point of, well, what about uh, groups that have less power? And what about people in those groups or people who've undergone, you know, very difficult difficult things? Do they really have to empathize with the with the people who've engaged in the oppression? And this is a tough question. I mean, If you look at research uh, on, you know, on these kinds of ability to, to especially perspective take that component of empathy, there's good evidence that actually that they're doing that already, that, that people that have less power are better at doing that. They're better at seeing the perspectives of others, even the perspectives of those with power um, and so it's actually those with power who are the least able uh, to engage in that perspective taking especially those with economic power um so there it might be it might be that the broadening out actually does need to occur with those who who have various forms of power because they're the ones that are deficient in it at the moment um there's only there's evidence for that i, I, I don't i don't think there's uh, entirely convincing evidence for that, but that could be one response to the concern you raise. Another one is, if you look at some of the most successful attempts to deal with oppression, although not entirely successful, um, things like truth and reconciliation commissions do kind of involve this kind of you know, back and forth between both oppressed and oppressor groups. Um, and that might give some model for how that might work. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a tough question. Uh, do we ask the oppressed uh, to empathize uh, with the oppressors? And, and you know, I, I, I don't know. That's, that's probably the biggest challenge uh, to, to my theory uh, on what we do with that. So uh, I, I know I don't know is not maybe the best response at this point, but I, I just don't. I don't. I haven't come to an, uh, a clear conclusion on that issue.
0: Yeah, it's tough. What uh, are are some, uh, what are some ways do you think that we could go about fostering more empathy within people? Like what what are some concrete steps that we could take? Especially, it seems especially hard nowadays, just circling back to everything that we're talking about with respect to social media and the internet where, you know, a lot of the uh, conversations between people are just going on on Twitter, where you're just getting 280 characters, and you're prone to misinterpret what people say, or or mind read, or engage in bad faith um, misinterpretations. So, w- yeah, what what are some ways forward here? Do you think? Well,
1: I think that. Um some people have made suggestions. I mean, one movement is on issues uh, of public public consultation. So, if we talk about more specific issues uh, related to how, uh, especially in politics, how government interacts, uh, there's been a wave. Uh, a lot of it in Europe, uh, but in other places of movements towards ideas of deliberative mini-publics. That is. Bringing different groups of people together, um, and using those uh, to inform policymaking and to to influence uh, kind of the public discourse in ways that demonstrate that uh, there are a lot of connections among people that they ignore when they engage in those those what you kind of the more vitriolic. Uh, Um, You know things in in this in the public discourse, Uh, so that's one possibility. I think uh, I've pointed to now in terms of the George Floyd situation. Of course, that was you know not uh, fictional, Um, and I don't think it necessarily has to be fictional. But but um, you can look at ways in which uh, arts. Uh, whether it's film or fiction or television or, or music or other sorts of ways can help people engage in the process of empathy with others. Um, I think we really need some leadership on this as well. And, but yeah. this also runs into a very difficult question because there's been a pushback right against this idea of both-siderism. Um, and, and there's a lot of people that just don't want to listen to people from the other side because they think they're just wrong. They think they're just on certain issues, just wrong. And I think that's problematic, but being a leader on this is very, very difficult. I've done an analysis of, uh, president Obama when he was, uh, running for office, gave a speech on race. And, and in that speech, he talked about his white grandmother and, and how he kind of understood why his white grandmother might uh, feel uncomfortable when she was walking down the street and came into contact with African young African-American men. And I think that that was a moment, and I've actually written a little bit about this. I really should go back to this and, and see see what I think now. But that was a moment where Obama was trying to engage in this kind of process of, of empathy, on uh, in a wide sense, mm-hmm. um, but the reaction in the news media was Obama throws his grandmother under the bus, right? Um, and so it's not very fashionable to say no, no, no. We need to listen to the other side. We need to really understand, even if we don't agree. I think that's maybe part of the problem. Yeah. And. Right. That when you say, I want to listen to Trump voters or I want to listen to people in Antifa, depending on which side you're on. Right. That seems to imply the notion that, well, I want to agree with them or I have to agree with them. Or if I empathize with them, I have to agree with them. And and that's not the case. Right. Like you but said, I think you have to understand them. Go ahead.
0: No, just like you said, the distinction between empathy and sympathy where empathy doesn't entail agreeing, agreeing with someone.
1: Yeah, but that's a tough line. I mean, that's a tough kind of line to or balance to, to have. That's a tough line to walk. Um that most people think if you if you uh say well, no, let's listen to them and let's see if if what they're saying and why they're saying it and can you understand why someone is that way yeah people push back they they don't want to necessarily listen to it and i understand that as well i mean that's the interesting thing about being someone who's so focused on empathy is i can even understand the people who disagree with me completely um most of the time but i think without that understanding uh, i think we're in trouble i mean yes we have to fight completely against injustices but if we do so by dehumanizing or by ignoring completely um, the people with whom we disagree, I think that in the end is very problematic uh, for democracy um, but it's a very it's a very hard position to be in where you want to say I can understand what you say, but I think you are completely and totally wrong
0: yeah. That strikes me as right. The tribalism is just so extreme. And like you say, there's this assumption that people on the other side of the political aisle are just dead wrong and maybe even evil. So you're more morally virtuous if you double down on the tribalism. And if you show any semblance of open-mindedness or or empathy, that just means that you're an ideological fence sitter, that you don't really have any true political convictions or moral convictions. And it, it actually uh, weirdly shows you to be, uh, like less morally good than if you just double down on the tribalism, like that's where it seems like we are. And I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how we break that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think again, that's where we are with a lot of people, but I think, and here's one of the tensions in a democracy is that the people that, that kind of truly strongly believe in the justice of what they're doing, and I think genuinely believe in the justice of what they're doing, are both at the same time the most likely to, to engage because they're motivated, yeah. while at the same time being the least likely to being open-minded and deliberative and willing to listen. Whereas the people that, and then there's, uh, Diana much did this book, and then there's some issues with the data, but I think the general idea that she came up with, it's called hearing the other side, is probably correct, that the people who who are most likely to listen and to being willing to hear both sides and talk about issues and engage, are the least likely to engage in political activity. Mm. And so, maybe this, if we think about this in connection with the partisan sort, before that, may not have led to quite as much tribalism because you had these cross-cutting cleavages within the political parties in the United States, especially. Um, that meant that even if you did engage, there, you were still going to. If you have a two-party system, and this is one of the advantages of the two-party. It's a disadvantage in other ways, but the two-party system advantages. The only way that you can really affect change is you have to engage with one of the major parties, and if you get into one of those major parties, you're still going to run into people that disagree with you and cross-clutting cleavages. And so, it does require you to engage with at least some people that disagree with you. With the partisan sword, however, we've seen that the people that you don't have to engage with are the people in the other party. And because there's so little overlap now between the two parties, you might have the internal fights, right? And that might you might have to feel, you know, engage with certain people that disagree with you. But in terms of the external fights, the fights that against the side that you truly think, like you said, maybe even think are evil, um, you don't engage with. And everybody else tends to say, well, I, I'm, I don't want to get involved with that. And so they are less engaged. They become the independents, so it's quote unquote, even if they're not that independent. Even if on political issues, they tend to be very Democrat and they'll vote very Democrat every time or tend to be very Republican and will vote Republican every time. They don't engage because they don't like that kind of process.
0: Yeah, it definitely seems like that. Like you said, you're saying the people who are the most likely to listen are the least likely to engage. Definitely, at least in the social media politics space, it seems like the conversation has in large part been hijacked by kind of the most passionate, most extreme voices on both sides, and they're drowning out all of the other maybe more reasonable voices.
1: Yeah, I will take your – I think that that's probably true. Again, I'm not on social media that much, so I don't know how much it is there. Stay off. Stay off. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think on – because – and I I think I want to say that because I think if you – Read, you know, if you look at things like the op-eds in the New York Times, I think there is some diversity of voices there, or in the Wall Street Journal. I think there is some diversity of voices there. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And they aim for that. I'm not sure if that will continue. Um, but I think there are some people that are willing to say, hey, let's 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 think about this some more, and let's, even if they're very committed. Um, to their particular view of, of the world. But I think that's also one of the things that's that's threatening with empathy. I have found that, so I will admit, one of the reasons why this interests me as a topic is, is as a, in high school and as uh, in college, I participated in competitive academic debate. So I was a debater. And mm-hmm. the thing about competitive academic debate is you don't get to just pick the side you want to defend. In fact, it rotates. So if you had six rounds at a tournament, half the rounds you would be on one side of the issue, half the rounds you'd be on the other side of the issue. And you'd have to – and you want to obviously win the debate because that's the driving thing for debaters. And so you'd have to come up with ways to make the best case on a particular side for each side. And engaging in that process is in some ways very, very revealing um, because the world is often not as black and white as we want it to be. I mean, it gives us comfort to have um, a good sense of, of what we think the world should be like. And that goes back to some of those other things we were talking about, affective intelligence, right? It's nice to feel habitually like the world is the way it should be. And you want to make the world the way you think it should be. And so that's very understandable. Uh, it, it becomes a very a position of kind of less anxiety in many ways. Um, but it also might lead you to ignore how complicated the world is, and and how you know, oftentimes we we things are aren't as clear as we want them to be. And there's people with good intentions who are not evil people. Um, who might be on the other side of an issue that you feel very, very strongly about. And they're not motivated by anything um, that is we might consider as morally bankrupt. Um, wow. And that's a difficult thing to, to to grapple with.
0: I think that's very well put. So yeah, you've been very generous with your time. I just have two final questions for okay. you. Here. Sounds good. Um, the first is on, and this is kind of more general about our political moment, I guess. The first is on populism. It seems like to me that we're living in an, in an age of populist politics. Uh, Elizabeth Anderson defines populism, and you might not agree with this definition, but she says, populism is a style of politics in representative democracies in which populist leaders or parties claim to exclusively represent the people against the elites. The people are depicted as virtuous. Elites are corrupt. Populism amounts to an exclusionary form of identity politics in which the people are always a subset of the citizens. She goes on to say that there's both right-wing populism and left-wing populism. Left-wing populists draw the people elite distinction between the working class and the rich. Bernie Sanders might be a contemporary example of this. Then right-wing populism frames the issue, according to her, in terms of three social divisions, the people, the elites, and the minority groups that elites have purportedly unjustly favored over the people. And I think Trump might be a contemporary example of that. So I guess my question here is, Do you is, first, do you agree that we're living in an age of populist politics? And if so, why do you think that's the case? Why is populism on the rise? And what's your opinion of populism? Do you think it's um, necessarily bad for democracy? Does it have some positive, some negative elements? So just be curious to get your perspective on that.
1: Yeah, I think that we have seen Several examples of populist leaders who've been able to uh, gain power uh, in recent times in certain parts of the world. Um, and I think that – that I kind of like the definition, uh, Anderson's definition. Um, there's various definitions out there. Uh, as far as the why goes um, – I haven't seen any entirely convincing arguments so far. Uh, I think it's complicated, like we were just talking about it. I think we can't uh, we can't ignore uh, the Great Recession uh, and the economic fallout from that. I think those those times of disruption, uh, economic disruption, can, can cause a, a lot of this to happen and for people to be open to it. Um, But I I can't say for sure that that's the cause of what's been going on. Is it good or bad for democracy? Uh, This is always uh, an interesting question, um, because the problem we run into is that oftentimes people that engage in this kind of populist approach to things, uh, as Anderson defines it, don't. Uh, limit themselves uh, to doing so democratically. Um, So we also see them engaging in activity that we might classify as authoritarian,
0: Mm.
1: right? Um, And I don't know why that's necessarily the case, um, but I think that is the case. And so that correlation... I'm not sure what the causality is between populism and authoritarianism, I think is concerning Um, because the thing about populism, the way populism uses kind of these authoritarian methods, uh, which is different than maybe some other forms of authoritarianism, is that populism uses the imprimatur of democracy, that uses the mandate of democracy to engage in anti-democratic actions. Right. Right. And, and in ways that unlike, I mean, there have been authoritarian regimes once uh, in the 20th century that they would have elections all the time. But everyone knew that they were just kind of, you know, shams, right? I mean, everyone knew that the, the dictator was going to get elected, even though we had an election, everyone knew they were shams. With the recent kind of moves, uh, if you look at uh, places like Poland and Hungary, for example, that have been leaning this way they do win elections. Um, now, are they completely free and fair? There, there might be some issues with that. Um, but at least the initial elections, are, there are certainly things that they win and then they use the mandate that comes from that to engage in things that I think do then undermine democracy in terms of control of the judiciary, in terms of control of the media, uh, in terms of, you know, using state power in ways that, that are oppressive. So, um, I, I think it's a problem. I'm not sure what the answer is. I mean, I'm a Democrat first, and I've always said, I'm not sure I'm a liberal Democrat. Um, I think, but I think illiberal democracy, the way they've been defining it is not really a liberal democracy. It's just illiberal undemocrat it's not democracy because there are certain things that democracies have to have and and that's a and the populism could be a problem with that um i'm not sure where it goes from here
0: i think that leads into my last question my last question is just what is your perspective on the current state of american democracy and are you worried that um, it's extremely fragile. I was there's this uh, Russian philosopher called Ivan Ilian that I came across and he has this argument against democracy where the basic reasoning is and I'm sure you're familiar with this, but just for the listeners, the basic reasoning is you know democratic values of free speech and individual rights make democratic institutions inherently vulnerable to things like authoritarianism and the vulnerability of democratic institutions ultimately and inevitably, will lead to the self-destructive failure of democracy. And I think Putin revitalized the philosophy of Ivan Ilyin and used that kind of analysis of the failure of democracy to help him consolidate power in post-Soviet Russia. What do you think of that analysis? And again, what is your general kind of perspective on where American democracy stands today?
1: Well, I think just about it. I mean, if we go back to the Greeks, right? I think they had something... uh, I think there was something to the idea that, that all systems, all institutions uh, contain within them aspects that might eventually lead to their erosion. And I think there's something to that. I mean, it's naive to think that the uh, institutions don't have even internal to themselves things that might erode them. And so I I think that's true. And I think that we we probably have to constantly, continually remind ourselves of what those – possible places of erosion are and continue you know to uh, try to mitigate them as far as the current state of the American democracy I guess I want to push back against some of the pessimism I mean I understand why people are are very very concerned about it Um, but I've always wondered to what degree the concern that a lot of people express um, with regard to it is wrapped up with their own concerns about not democracy itself but the policies that have been resulting from democracy or at least some kind of democracy we have that is it's hard to separate our frustration with let's say if you're if you don't like president trump your frustration with president trump's actions that might be th- threatening to democracy from your frustrations with Trump's actions that are policies that you just disagree with and that you think are not, are unjust, even unjust. I mean, not just that you disagree with them, that you think that they're unjust or, and, and so figuring out where the threat is to democracy, you know, Let's say, for example, when he says, when he answers Chris Wallace this week, um, are you going to accept the election if you lose? And he goes, oh, I'm not so sure. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> that <laughs> that versus, you know, a policy like one that affected Yukon that we put that, that Yukon pushed back against, for, the, for example, this idea that if you were international students who were taking all their classes online couldn't be resident in the united states i thought that was a bad policy i thought it was you know tinged with uh, you know the the anti-immigrations that can be xenophobic um and can be racist um, But did I think that was against democracy? I I I don't think so. So, and it's really hard to keep those two things separate. So, is there a concern? Yes, certainly. There's a concern. The idea people want power, especially those people engaged in politics, want power, and and they are going to do things to get that power, and. We have limits on what they can do in a democracy, um, and I believe President Trump in many ways more than any other president has pushed those limits, uh, at least more than any other president in recent times. But I think there are a lot of people, a lot of institutions that would push back against that. And and I think at this point in time, at least for right now, I think those institutions are stronger. Um, in the United States. I may be naive, I may be fooling myself, but as far as democracy itself goes, I think uh, there's a threat, but I think the United States system will handle it. Um, Does that mean we're going to be passing policies that I think are good and just, and and that's a different question.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, it's nice to hear that note of optimism and that distinction between uh, actions that threaten democracy and the pushing of policies that you just disagree with—I think—is really helpful, at least to me. Um, thank you for for doing this, Professor. I found this very illuminating.
1: Well, thank you, Cody, for the kind words. Uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure uh, how much I, I've illuminated for sure, but I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk to me about it and asking some great questions.